There's a probable true story from my Texas-born and bred family lore about the day one of my uncles and a couple of cousins were chopping cotton, hoeing down weeds in a West Texas cotton field, about as hot as it is right now. Our uncle, my grandmother, our, our grandmother's youngest brother, had recently been converted in a faith community that insisted, at least as he understood it, that theirs was the true church of Christ, the only saving faith available. With a new convert's zeal, he later became one of their preachers, with a new convert's zeal, he warned his nephews that they must convert to that specific faith or spend eternity in hell. A topic that's much easier to talk about today. <laughs> one of them worried about our grandmother, the holiest person we knew. Spoke out loud, fearing she was internal, in eternal danger. Are you saying that even grandma will go to hell if she doesn't join your church? Yes, our uncle, her son, replied. I'm sorry to say she will. With that word, my cousin had finally had enough. Well, he declared, when it comes to faith, I think I'll take my chances with Grandma. <laughs> this morning, the writer of Hebrews calls us to this moment. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. My grandmother, Frances Edith Hinton, a Texas farm woman, personified such faith. When she moved to town, finally, she became a member of the Fundamental Baptist Church of Decatur, Texas, a strict constructionist congregation with a big neon anchor outside that flashed Jesus saves 24-7. I rest my case with you all. But unlike some of her preachers, she never let her fundamentalism make her mean. In 1975, when I began my first teaching job at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Louisville, and word got out, one of her church friends warned that Billy's gone liberal. <laughs> to which my grandmother replied, well, I don't know what a liberal is, but if Billy's one, I guess it's all right. She believed and lived as if faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. She nurtured that kind of faith in me, and I am ever grateful. 
in this sometimes year of our Lord, 2022, one of the multiple challenges faith facing American churches is how to articulate the meaning of Christian faith in a society where many are distancing themselves from organized faith traditions. We cannot take it for granted that Americans know even the rudiments of Christian faith, a reality further complicated by the extensive diversity of our biblical, theological, cultural interpretations as Christians of the nature of faith itself, interpretations that divide as readily as they unite churches. Culture war divisions have compounded the difficulty of shared faith precepts. And as if that were not enough, COVID continues to foster limits on the church's worship and teaching ministries. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews had similar difficulties, especially given the early church's Jewish Christian constituency. Some insisted that those professing Christian faith had first to enter through Judaism. Others wanted to purge all Jewish influence out of Christianity, even editing the New Testament accordingly. Google the name Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, if you're interested. The world into which Christianity came was itself a religiously pluralistic culture with a variety of deities, spiritualities, and orthodoxies claiming devotees. In an insightful commentary, my Wake Forest University religion colleague, Dr. Mary Foskett, reminds us that the writer is addressing Christians some of whom, she says, were struggling with their faith and others who were neglecting to meet together. She continues, at the time of the letter's composition, things seemed even more fraught than when the community faced explicit external pressures and duress, including the confiscation confiscation of property. She finishes, in the time since, they had become less confident and their energy for the faith seems to have waned. Does that sound at all familiar to our times? Hebrews' brilliant description starts with a dramatic paradox. Faith is the assurance Sure enough, but of things hoped for, the assurance of God's activity in the not yet. The writer also insists that faith is an abiding conviction. King James says evidence, a certainty of things not seen, the abiding but unseen presence of God in the world. Yet the writer of Hebrews declares that assurance and conviction of faith's reality is real 
because those hopes were actualized in the past, in the long history of redemption evident with those who came before us. Abraham and Sarah are a case in point. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. And there you have it. Faith may be assurance and conviction, but it is also risky. It strengthens us to confront the unknown, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, paradoxical gospel affirmations that allow us to confront life's inescapable uncertainties. The great Presbyterian writer, preacher Frederick Beekner says it wonderfully, as he always does. Faith is better understood as a verb than as a noun, as a process than a possession. It is on again, off again, rather than once and for all. Faith is not being sure where you are going, but going anyway. Ah. And it is a journey without maps. Today we say it is a pilgrimage at once challenging and transforming. The journey of faith offers us assurance of our hopes as evident in God's unseen presence, but even then it is an adventure into the unknown. Abraham set out not knowing where he was going. Faith offers, even requires, the courage to confront the unknown. Sarah and Abraham, like all of us eventually, experience a life situation that seems to have boxed them in. God has told them that they will have a child through whom they will beget a new community of multitudes. But before you can have multitudes, you got to have one. And at that, Sarah and Abraham were not so lucky. Finally, when Sarah hears that the oh-so-late-in-life uh, issue still means that she's going to have a son, she laughs her head off and says straight up, how can this be now that I am out of my time and my husband is old? <laughs> that ought to send a chill through every male in this congregation this morning. Even the assurance of things hoped for can't correct postmenopausal biology. But it happened. You gotta love the Sarah Abraham saga, especially since Hebrews tells it with all the earthiness of the original Genesis account. Just listen. By faith, Abraham received the power of procreation, even though 
He was too old. And Sarah herself was barren. Because they believed what God had promised. Somehow the older I get, the more I love that text. I'm just saying. The writer of Hebrews then presses the case. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as grains of sand by the seashore. What they hoped had happened. Things unseen became tangible. By the way, I wonder if their son Isaac, whose name means laughter, ever told folks, I was born to people who were as good as dead. Chilling. As a historian by training and a Christian by faith, I'm always moved by persons of faith whose assurance of things hoped for happened even if they didn't live long enough to see it happen. These days, I keep remembering the Reverend John Leland, Virginia Baptist pastor, who challenged colonial religious establishments of the Puritans in the East and Anglicans in the South because, as a Baptist, he opposed efforts by governments or their state-privileged religion to coerce faith. God alone was judge of conscience. And around 1790, Leland wrote, hear this, this morning. Government should protect every person in thinking and speaking freely and see that one does not abuse another. The liberty I contend for is more than toleration. The very idea of toleration is despicable. It supposes that some religions have a preeminence above the rest to grant indulgence, whereas all should be equally free, Jews, Turks, pagans, Christians. He even added, whether the Christian religion is true or false, it is not an article of legislation. Amen. <laughs> God love you. In this case, I'm continuing. Bible Christians and deists have an equal plea against self-named Christians who tyrannize over the other consciences of others under the specious garb of religion and good order. Leland's faith in the assurance of things hoped for led him to threaten to run against James Madison for the Continental Congress until Madison would support the First Amendment to the new Constitution. He lived long enough to see that amendment become the law of the land. It's still fluid. Speaking of courage, it now falls to us 
to work for the preservation of uncoerced faith in the land of the free and the home of the Supreme Court. I know you are considering dropping the word Baptist from your church's public declaration of identity. And as I've told you, this may be a time when the Baptist name is so broken that it may be necessary to publicly relinquish it. But you must continue to promote the memory of the Baptist people who claimed that name for the sake of faith and freedom. People like Roger Williams and John Leland and Martin Luther King Jr. and Fannie Lou, uh, Lou Hamer and Nani Helen Burroughs whose assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen compelled them to seek free, the freedom of uncoerced faith for Christian and non-Christian alike. Bad, colonial Baptists were among the first to talk in terms of what we now call religious pluralism in the new colonies. Which brings us to Reverend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom I cited last week and with whom I conclude today because I believe that we are living in a Bonhoeffer moment right now, right here. A time that demands our strongest hope and our deepest conviction as people anchored in the Jesus story. So amid my own uncertainties about the future, I run to Bonhoeffer's words and witness, lived out and written from the Nazi prison where he was executed for his passion for faith and freedom. In that dark time and place, he claimed the hope and optimism of gospel faith writing, the essence of optimism is not its view of the present, but the fact that it is an inspiration of life and hope when others give in. It enables persons to hold their heads high when everything seems to be going wrong. It gives them strength to sustain reverses and yet claim the future for themselves instead of abandoning it, abandoning it to their opponents. Bonhoeffer concluded this way. It is true that there is a silly, cowardly kind of optimism which we must condemn. But the optimism that is a will for the future should never be despised even if it is proven wrong a hundred times, it is, healthy and it is health and vitality, and the sick individual has no business to impute it. It may be that the judgment day will dawn tomorrow. And in that case, though not before, we shall gladly stop working for a better future. In today's gospel text in the lectionary, Jesus reflects a similar will 
for the future. Do not be afraid, little flock, he tells those who first believed. God's new day is at hand, the kingdom. To them and to us, Jesus says, get ready. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Today, we ask by faith, where are our hearts? Amen.